Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty, live in the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. My brother Darren and I have been really enjoying the last three days with Neil Kinsey. He's been putting on a seminar here at the Morton Center. So we've got a special treat for the radio show today. This show is entirely questions from our audience and just questions that have come in here over the last three days and talking through those together with Neil. So, Neil, uh, thanks a lot for being here today. I know we've had you on the show a number of times. I don't know if we've ever had you in person on the show before, but uh, this is a real treat and a real honor. So thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. All right. So Darren is out in the crowd right now. And Darren, I think you got our first question for us. Oh, and by the way, if you wouldn't mind, just give us your first name and the state that you're from. I should tell you, too, for all of our listeners, we actually had farmers here, roughly 600 farmers from 30 different states, from five Canadian provinces, and from the country of Bulgaria as well. So it's really been a lot of fun here over the last three days. But anyway, go ahead, sir. Uh, John from Minnesota. Neil, you were talking about copper um, and kind of wondering, is, um, as a natural fungicide, what levels of copper would you have to have, and can you use copper in place of fungicides? Um, actually, I have no experience at all about using copper directly as a fungicide. Uh, what I would tell you is the, the thing that we tell clients is that if you increase your copper levels in the soil, it helps in fighting uh, fungus and mold type diseases but to use it as, to go ahead and use it that way I've, I have no experience to be able to tell you uh, look using that as a like a fungicide just directly because you have a problem or whatever. Yep there are a number of products that are labeled for that and you can look right on the label because it is going to vary a little bit depending on the crop and the crop stage. Um, I would tell you too not only killing fungus but it's it can be a little bit of a bactericide. Now I'm not going to say it's perfect or anything like that and we obviously do have to be careful with the rates because you you absolutely can't have leaf burn but yes that is a proven thing and there are a lot of people who are using relatively low rates to get some activity more than just the foliar feeding and the nutrient benefits to it. All right, uh, are we ready for our next question? Otherwise, uh, Darren, if we don't have questions immediately from the audience, we do have still, I, I think over the last three days, we probably got 200 questions in from our audience, and we probably haven't gotten to half of those yet, or at least a quarter of those. No, we haven't. We, yeah. I got one from Evan here, and he said, uh, question for Neil. I'm wondering how far you would suspect soil microbes or biology will move applied nutrients in the soil laterally. For example, low-rate dry fertilizer like copper pellets, boron pellets, etc. Well, I don't know whether to give uh, whether to give the, all the credit to the microbes and so forth, but in terms of specifically copper, when you come out and apply copper at say five pounds per five pounds of copper sulfate per acre, you only got a little blue stone here and one over there and one over there. You put that on at planting time on potatoes and by the time the potatoes bloom, the copper's already in the potato. We didn't get enough copper up beside those potato plants because we're talking broadcast, not putting it under the row, broadcasting the copper. And you can still detect the copper is already there in those leaves of the potatoes by the time they bloom. How did that copper get there? I don't know how to explain it other than if you look at the biology of the soil, the roots suddenly didn't get out that far. And 
So I would say I think the microbial populations are extremely important in terms of making available the micronutrients in those soils. All right, and let's go to our next question here. Uh, Terry from Minnesota. I have a question. Over the last couple of days, we talked about how some uh, soil tests can overstate manganese on the test. What do you recommend to get the best or most reasonably accurate representation in your soils? Okay, in terms of manganese, I don't know if it's necessarily overstated. We don't know for sure. I would tell you this. What Neil is going to have on his tests seem to be dramatically different, especially as the pH gets to 7 and, and above compared to Midwest Labs. And we do see with the Malik 3 extraction, that is dramatically different than a DTPA test. So when you get to many of the northern labs, let's take Midwest Labs, AgVise, they're running DTPA tests for micronutrients. And they believe they are more accurate for the high pH soils and better reflect nutrient availability as opposed to what's just in the soil. So, I, you know, we've been running studies on this. I, I still don't have anything real conclusive, but I, I would tell you the numbers look a lot closer when we get to pHs, especially 6 and below, but even 6, 5 and below, it's at least a little bit more, it's a little bit closer. When we look at the published data that's out there comparing Malik 3 versus DTPA, there are correlations. There are correlations for a lot of these different tests. So you can go to one lab and another lab. You might multiply times 2 or times 1.5, whatever. But there seems to be no correlation whatsoever with the manganese test, other than we know the difference becomes much greater between DTPA and Malik 3 as that pH goes up. So I wish I had some amazing answer for you to tell you, well, this is exactly what you do. I don't know other than what I re really care most about is am I making money and is what I'm putting out there making a lot of sense to me. So when we've sent some of our tests in to Neil, for example, uh, the, the tests have been fine. Now, they haven't been to this. What I'm usually, usually shooting for is very high levels. I want, uh, let's see, how does he say it? The high side of excellent, right, Neil? The high side of excellent. I'm not there with manganese even on his test. I, and I'm really low on the Midwest Labs test. So I'm going to continue doing some building. But the problem I have with manganese is it's just really expensive. I don't mind it with zinc, for example. Zinc's dirt cheap. I, and I'll, I can take my level to 10 parts per million or 20 parts per million. It doesn't cost much at all. But if I'm going to try to do that with manganese, now I'm spending some, some serious cash. So for me to do it on 3,000 acres that we farm, not going to happen. But we'll probably do a lot more work on 50, 100, 200 acres. And we're just going to continue talking to you about this as time goes on. we got to take a break here. But I just wanted to let you know, again, we're doing something a little bit different today. We are just wrapping up a Neil Kinsey seminar. Got the radio show after that. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Your land is a legacy, a challenge from those who tended it before you to build on their foundations. At Corteva AgriScience, we understand what it means to be the stewards of a legacy. We embrace the challenge of building on the foundation of Dow AgroSciences to maintain your trust, to bring new solutions, to help you care for your land. See how we can help build your legacy at rangeandpasture.com. 
How much yield and profit did you lose the moment you put your seed in the ground? A poor stand at planting keeps your crops from reaching their yield potential, and closing the seed trench behind the planter is essential to establishing a good crop stand. The Germinator Closing Wheel from FarmShop MFG is here to give your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Act now to receive an early order rebate plus free shipping. Get ready for spring planting with the Germinator Closing Wheel. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. When looking for someone to help with your risk management, a key component to look for is patience. Patience to bring you along in the process at your own speed. Patience to learn about your operation. And patience to not only discuss what strategies may be effective for your plan, but why they would be effective. That's the strength of Grain PhD. I'm Darren Hefty. When you're ready to become more engaged in your risk management, Grain PhD can assist you with that process. Visit grainphd.com to learn more. Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. The Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Morton Center right on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Just wrapped up a Neil Kinsey workshop for the last three days. It's been a lot of fun. Now, you may not think that talking soils for three straight days sounds like fun, but you know what I've always told people? What's fun to me is doing well on the farm and hopefully making some money on the farm. Well, fertility is an enormous, enormous key. And we've followed what Neil has talked about for years and years. And so it's just been a real pleasure to have him right here on our farm with about 600 farmers for the last few days talking through all these issues. So let's get to our next question right here. What I thought's been fun, Brian, is that Neil settled a lot of disputes that you and I have had. And nine times out of ten, he's been on my side. So I really like that. It's been a fun three days. <laughs> Dave from Minnesota. Uh, Neil, I might have misunderstood you the other day. Um, in regards to um, magnesium soil tests on Midwest Labs running uh, high teens, low 20s, did I hear you correctly that you can still correct a higher magnesium with a dolomitic lime? Well, uh, first of all, now, uh, if you hear someone comment on the Midwest samples, it should be Darren or Brian and not me. <laughs> But Let's assume that it was his test that showed 18 to 20. <laughs> sure. So your question is, can you adjust that with dolomitic lime? Well, here's the, here, th this gets a little difficult perhaps for the audience, but here's the situation. If you add, if you're looking at your calcium magnesium and you add the calcium percentage of base saturation and the magnesium together, and that totals less than 78%, it doesn't matter how much magnesium you have in that soil when you correct the calcium, if you don't add enough magnesium, you're also going to create a magnesium deficiency. So in those kind of cases, yes, you can have a high percentage of magnesium and still need to add magnesium in order to, if you put on the proper amount of calcium, in order to be sure we still have the accurate amount of magnesium. Okay, thank you. 
I would say as a general statement, though, we have a lot of really high magnesium levels in the northern United States and, and other areas certainly, too. So we just want to caution you. If you just heard that, you might think, well, I can put on dolomitic lime anytime I want to. No, that's not what was said there. So just keep in mind, if you've got tremendously high magnesium levels, usually we're talking calcitic lime. That's high in calcium and low in magnesium instead of the dolomitic lime that has a lot of magnesium in addition to the calcium. All right, go ahead, sir. Uh, yeah, Dan from Iowa. Uh, it's kind of maybe a multi-part question here, but... Um, over the past two days, we've talked a lot about boron, and I know I'm very short on boron on pretty much every sample I have. But uh, Sounds like us. Go ahead. <laughs> the solubor you've talked about, first of all, do you guys have that available? Oh, there, there is solubor available at most fertilizer dealers around the country, most states, uh, most, most countries for that matter. So yes, yeah, solubor is pretty well available. And the reason why we talk solubor sometimes is you can actually mix that in water and it ends up being less expensive than some of these straight boron products that are out there. But certainly some of those straight boron products can work fairly well too. Hey Brent, let yeah, me oh add yeah, another comment here on the solubor too. We've been using a pound and a quarter of solubor an acre for, well, since back in the 1990s, if you remember some of the uh, a lot of guys would call them burners in soybeans, the blazers and cobras and those kinds of products. What farmers were finding is adding a pound and a quarter of solubor in lessens some of that burn. Now, to me, it just signals exactly what you were saying. We've got so many soils that are low to deficient in boron that if we could just get that crop healthy by feeding it properly, uh, it, it responded so much better to many of the management practices that we're doing. Have you seen that too, Neil? You you certainly get all around the world. When you look around the world at boron levels, are they as low as some that, that Dan was talking about here? Yes, we see that the, it's very rare that we see soils and we say, oh, if they haven't been putting on quite a bit of boron, I don't even think I've ever seen one where we'd say, oh, you have good boron levels. Most of the time, it's deficient and maybe even extremely deficient. Go ahead. Okay, and then the second half of that is um, I'm looking at doing some spring applied decomp for residue breakdown because I'm corn on corn. Yep. Could I possibly mix that in with that or would that have a micro problem? Ooh, that's a good question. I'll tell you what, um, our research lead, Glenn, is, I believe, out in the hall there, and he can probably talk to you about that. With In terms of boron, together with some of these beneficial microbes that a person could use, I can't say that we have a tremendous concern with that. Zinc is much more of a, a worry for us, especially the ammoniated zinc. So we look a little bit at water quality. We look a lot at what nutrients specifically are we throwing with those microbes, and then we look at how long are they going to be together. Now, I know nitrogen applications with that have been really good, uh, but of course you're trying to break down carbon material and adding more nitrogen to get that balance to shift a little bit is is important there too. So yeah, nitrogen I could speak to as well. That's good. Boron, I'm not, I'm not certain on it again. Uh, we can hook you up with our research lead on that. Uh, let's take another question here. We got one from Caleb in Georgia. My question was similar along the lines of boron and raising the levels up. We have a low exchange capacity soil. Is it still uh, probable that we can raise our boron levels or in the light ground are we just basically putting on what the crop would need each year? In terms of uh, our experience, uh, with lighter soil, the lighter the soil or the lower the exchange capacity, 
the harder it is to keep those boron levels built up or to help build them up. Uh, those soils, as when we're starting to look, the, the soils that's really hard to hold boron are the ones with an exchange of two or three. But now you start getting on up to four or five, still we have to work at keeping the boron levels up. By the time you get up into the eights and nines, it gets easier to build and maybe not hold long enough that we could skip a year or two, but it gets better to be able to get at least to the levels we need. Down at two and three, sometimes it's hard to even get to the, what we'd say is the minimum threshold of 0 0.8 parts per million. And then the other issue that you've got, or I say issue, not really an issue, but you have heat and you have a lot of moisture. So here we have heavy soils, so that's the first reason why we don't lose nearly as much. But we don't have a whole lot of heat, and we definitely don't have a whole lot of moisture. I mean, when you think about our ground being froze for half of the year, well, nothing's really moving. So <laughs> there are advantages and disadvantages to our cold and dry weather sometimes. But, yeah, with that boron, that's, I'd tell you the same thing Neil did. We, we, you got to stay after it constantly. We may not have to make in-season applications to get our boron levels up, or if we do, it might be one shot or something. But for you, who knows? I mean, for big-time yields, you might be talking mini applications of boron throughout the season. So we have talked, I, I, in fact, even at this meeting, I've talked to some people who said, you know, almost every pass I'm making across the field, I'm throwing some boron in with it. These leachables are a real challenge in that light soil you've got. It, it can certainly be done. There are a lot of super high-yield farmers that have very light soils, but you've got to look at nitrogen, sulfur, and boron constantly. All right, we got uh, just a couple minutes before our break, but we've got time for one more question here. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this is Greg from Texas. I have a question about cotton. <clears throat> Sounds I mean, like Neil's wheelhouse rather than mine in this one. Go ahead. <laughs> um, if we are low on all of our micronutrients, where do we start, and what would be your top three to address? If you're equally low on all micronutrients, then what I would say is, the first one that would be obvious to address is the boron. If you're low, you're going to get knotty bowls. And so if you're not seeing knotty bowls, then don't put boron up there at the top. Uh, but boron, manganese, and copper would be the ones, unless you tell me, uh, uh, well, uh, let's put it this way. If you have a low rainfall area and you're not irrigating and your zinc is below six, then zinc would be in the top three. It, that would be boron, manganese, and zinc. Uh, copper would come after that. Iron, unless you have a serious iron problem, and normally, if you can, normally, in that area, you would not. But if you tell me you have an iron problem, it'd still be I'd put the others before the iron. Yeah, one of the big things we've been talking about here for the last three days is make sure that you're getting complete soil tests run. And then don't just look at NP and K. When Darren and I, and I made this comment several times in the last three days, but Darren and I look at soil samples every single day. We get samples sent in to us, and it is very, very common where we see just NP and K, maybe pH, maybe a sulfur, maybe a zinc, but, I mean, the, these other nutrients that Neil just mentioned, these micronutrients, they, they aren't even on half the tests that we see. So please get those. They are super important for yield, just like NP and K are. Well, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. Hey, Adam. New drone? Not just any drone. I mounted a laser on it to take out weeds. Look out for that tree. In the power lines! Oh, it's in for the house. 
There's a simpler way to protect spring wheat from weeds. Perfect Match Herbicide. The broadest spectrum weed and grass control in one product. Learn more at perfectmatchherbicide.com. Always read and follow label directions. The laser. Hey, Bill, any advice to control tough weeds and rootworms? That's easy, Jim. Buy two, save three. Wait, for weeds and rootworms? Buy two, save three. Combine your Impact or new Impact Z herbicide purchase with a qualifying insecticide and save $3 per acre. Buy two, save three. That is good advice. For details, go to buy2save3.com. Impact, Impact Z, and Buy Two Save Three are trademarks owned by Amvac Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic insecticides from Atticus, LLC. Unwanted insects are a nuisance, but they're no match for Serpent from Atticus. Serpent delivers economical, fast-acting, broad-spectrum control to help your corn, soybeans, and wheat crops thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, the system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. Featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. How much yield did you lose the moment you planted your seed? Introducing the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Designed and built by a farmer tired of seeing yield loss from poor stands, the Germinator gives your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Visit farmshopmfg.com. Tired of that old warped poly boom ruining your spray applications? Express Boom from Hypro is a fully assembled stainless steel boom that ensures an even application of chemicals every time. Don't wait another season. Upgrade today. Hypro, helping you spray better. Thanks for joining us here today on Ag PhD Radio. Just wrapped up a seminar with Neil Kinsey. And we are taking questions from our audience. Let's get right back to that. I'm Dennis uh, from Iowa, and my question is, we've been uh, well informed about the benefits of sulfur. Can I incorporate sulfur as my residue management early spring with my pre-plant herbicides, along with maybe some extra nitrogen and get a benefit? I would tell you, any time you can put sulfur on that's close to planting time, as long as, uh, as, long as you're putting on sulfur that's needed for the crop or needed for get rid of to feed the microbes in the soil or whatever early spring incorporating that sulfur is a, a, a good investment yes for many years we used ammonium thiosulfate as our carrier for herbicide instead of water and uh, we use an agroliquid product called access kind of similar we have we use fertilizer a lot as the carrier and we want sulfur in there so for example our our 
we have three guys that work for us on the farm. Tomorrow morning, they will be spraying. And I know it seems nuts to a lot of people, but tomorrow morning the temperature is supposed to be 21 degrees and i say that's perfect for spraying and you go what 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 are you what are you doing well here's the thing at this time of year we have thawing in the afternoon we some mornings are froze in the morning so the ground is hard for just a little bit and we can get across that with the sprayer it works out fantastically well but when it's 21 degrees can i use water as the carrier probably not going to work real good. When I use liquid 28% and some sulfur, that works fantastically well. So we will be spraying. We get that workload out of the way. And for us in a dry area of the country with super heavy soils, our biggest challenge each spring is, believe it or not, in, even in this dry country, we're too wet. And so we struggle to get things done on time. We have a very narrow window when we need to get that crop in the ground. Well, along with that, we got to get the herbicide on. We want to get fertilizer on. So we got a lot of jobs to do. And we just have found over the years by spraying in March, before we can ever plant, our first plant date here for corn on crop insurance is April 10th. This is a great time to get that out there. But we don't want to do it when the ground is frozen and going to stay frozen. Uh, it, what, what we like to do, like in a situation like tomorrow morning, where we're hoping we'll get a little precip here over the next week, but the ground's going to thaw tomorrow afternoon. It's going to get really warm over uh, or on Saturday and Sunday. And really warm, I mean 60 degrees for us. That's amazing. But anyway, the chemical and fertilizer does seem to attach to soil pretty well. We'll probably get rain in the next week or so. That'll start to soak in. And this works out good when we've got the freeze-thaw kind of thing at this time of year. But hey, absolutely, Brian, sulfur is a great thing. Just to follow up on your question with the herbicide, uh, Greg was just asking over here, uh, does your herbicide work well? Does it work any differently works putting better. it on now versus putting it on in May? Yep, it works better. And here's the reason why. Because and You're talking about soil residual herbicides, soil residual not herbicides. foliar no, contact type no, herbicides. No, no. Now would be a terrible time to spray Roundup. There are no weeds that are growing. But with the residual herbicides, our biggest challenge in this geography has always been, do we get enough rain and do we get it timely? Because you got to think about with a lot of the residual herbicides, they don't have the contact activity. And once that weed comes out of the ground, they don't work very well anymore. We want that herbicide. And especially when we lay it on the soil surface in a no-till or strip-till situation, we've got to get rain to get it into the ground. And we have to have more moisture to move it into the plant. So we, we got to have some rainfall. And the most complaints we get on all these pre-emerge herbicides are from guys that are in very dry climates and they don't get that timely rain. So I always say, well, you can solve that problem real easy. Just put it on a month early. Oh, I'm worried about losing the herbicide. Where's the herbicide going to go? No, I mean, it's not going to leach away because down deep in the soil, there's still frost down at the 20-inch depth right here, right now. And in terms of losing it to the sun or anything else, well, there's not a lot of sun at this time of year. We don't have weeds growing. So putting it on now is just like putting it on in April, early April, yet I got the work done but we find that we have more time to get rain on it, and we actually have better results when we spray now versus doing the exact same thing a month from now. It, yeah, and we've been doing this for years. So I, this, again, just like the fertility stuff, I can tell you from firsthand experience over decades now, this really works. You just have to pick the right timing. Our biggest challenge some years is there's too much snow cover. Well, you can see around here there's no snow cover right now, so this is perfect. This is a great year to get this job done. All right, uh, let's go to the next question. Hi, it's uh, Nathan from Manitoba, Canada. Um, Neil, you commented on uh, anhydrous being less efficient than other products. Um, we're consistent anhydrous users 
um, especially in our cereals and brassica crops. Uh, we typically do that via mid-row band um, seeding with our Borgo air drill. Um, just some com comment on why you think the broadcast, say, urea is a better option than the banded anhydrous at seeding time. All right, uh, and that's that's the point that uh, Darren was making. Uh, uh, where we are down in southeast Missouri, well, we don't have the ground that freezes up and stays, and so normally they don't put any anhydrous on in the fall. They wait until spring and maybe even side dress the corn with anhydrous just after it's up and growing. Uh, the only thing that I was saying is, if you're going to use anhydrous, that under those conditions, we find you have to use 20% more actual in in order to get the same response as we do from broadcasting ammonia nitrate or uh, urea. Now, urea being safened urea, if you're not going to work it in or cover it or something of that nature, but if you're going to work it in, just urea. And I, I don't know what the what the explanation is it's just that over the years that's what we started to observe and we'd get farmers to actually run tests to see well you know do you get as good a response from one as the other because most of the many of the clients that we were working with in southeast missouri were using anhydrous now it's 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 sort of changed a little so that today a lot of the guys on sand still use anhydrous, but the guys on the heavier soils don't use as much anhydrous as used to be used. Uh, some of them said they felt like it made their soil harder. That was one of the reasons. They, they started in 55, and by 10 years later, most of the guys on the heavy soils had quit. Uh, everybody says it doesn't make your soil harder. Well, it doesn't unless you put enough extra nitrogen on so that the nitrogen when it converts to nitrate and then leaches out it leaches out as nitric acid and pulls the calcium out and in that kind of a case it will make the soil harder but say you use just the proper amount and it's going to be used up anhydrous is not going to make your soil harder there but we just find we've got to use 20 percent more nitrogen in order to get the same yield one of the things that we talked about a lot over the last three days is Prove us right or prove us wrong. So we we have, and it, certainly Neil has much more experience than Darren and I do, but I, I would just say, you know, for, for almost anything that we've ever heard, we say, you know, let's just try it out in the field. And Darren was joking earlier in the show about Neil's probably agreed with Darren more than he's agreed with me. Honestly, I don't care if I'm right or wrong. Let's just figure out what is right. If Darren's right, great. Darren's making a bunch of decisions on our farm. I benefit from that financially. So that's awesome. So let's figure it out and, and experiment with some of these things. So that's where we've been talking so much about our own experiences. Uh, we've got about a minute and a half before the break, uh, but we can take one more quick one here. Neil, on page 52, the lower right-hand picture, I don't, it looks like wheat to me. I had 400-acre field of spring wheat solid stem following, uh, uh, it was canola the year before. And uh, uh, anyway, that, the bottom, the lower part of that picture, my 400 acres looked identical to that. Uh, I didn't get a chance to soil test it last fall. I sent in a sample of the, the whole plant and soil to the research station in Sydney. 
they came back and told me that it was uh, uh, root rot. We we treated the seed, uh, but I see here you got nitrogen ties up copper. Could you explain that, please? I'll I'll, I'll tell you what. We're going to need to take a quick break here. But this for our listeners, I just want to explain what this picture is showing. It's a bunch of lodged. I assume that's wheat, wheat. there. Is that yes. yeah? That's wheat. So it looks pretty rough because there's very little of that wheat that is standing. Most of it is laying over. And so the comment on that slide was nitrogen ties up copper. So we'll cover that right after this break. Again, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. You know a healthy crop is required for your best results. Simply put, balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid Fertilizers have the research, technology, and products to deliver those results. We also have an outstanding team of field agronomists ready to help you with your fertility decisions. AgriLiquid can help you maximize your yield potential effectively and economically. Visit agriliquid.com to find a dealer near you. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. White mold, sudden death syndrome, root rot. If you raise soybeans, it may seem like you have all the cards stacked against you when it comes to disease. But did you know there is a new cost-effective seed treatment which can help prevent all three? Heads Up Seed Treatment offers a new proactive approach for dealing with fungal and bacterial diseases. Compatible with other seed treatments, hedge your bet against disease this spring. Ask your dealer for Heads Up today. To locate a dealer, visit headsupst.com. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. Your grain bin fans can cost you a lot. High electric bills from running when conditions are not ideal, shrinkage from overdried grain, and spoiled grain all take money out of your pocket. With the Steps GMS app temperature humidity switch, get your bin fans to start making you money. Only run vans when the conditions are right. Eliminate shrink and spoilage in your bins. Deliver grain in top condition at market moisture. When every dollar counts, you need Steps GMS. Contact us today at stepsgms.com.
Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren and joined by our special guest today, Neil Kinsey. Having a good time answering some of these questions from our audience after Neil's seminar that we just wrapped up. So right before the break, we were talking about nitrogen tying up copper and this wheat that was flat. So just as a general statement, Neil, let me phrase it to you this way. What are the most important nutrients that a farmer needs to look at to avoid lodging problems in any crop? Number one, potassium. Number two, manganese. Number three, copper. Okay, now specifically to this, nitrogen tying up copper, talk to us about that. This farmer built up his soils. He had good potassium levels. He put on the manganese he needed. He put on the copper he needed. All these were in good ranges. Maybe not excellent, but all of them were good enough so that he should never have a problem like this. Yep. But uh, uh, an expert on wheat growing came along and convinced him, well, if you just put on more nitrogen, you can grow about another 40 bushels of wheat. Yep. Well, he put on this extreme amount of nitrogen, and then you can see what happened in that picture. Uh, he had almost, well, a very high percentage of lodging in in his fields, and you can look, that's his field across the way there, too, so not all of them lodge <laughs> like the first one, but lodging all over the place and it's where he got the uh, the extra nitrogen generally okay brian yeah. uh so talking with greg from montana here with the question and he's got copper levels down around 0.6 parts per million and uh let's i'll let greg tell you just a second about his nitrogen program here. well wait a second though what lab midwest okay so I mean, we may want a little higher level in relation to Neil's. Let's just assume that that was Neil's test, so we get Neil to comment on that. Neil, if you had 0.6 on copper, how do you feel about that level if it was your test? We say that 0.6 needed to be raised to 2.00 in order to eliminate... Okay. Copper. Okay. And lodging. can I do that in one? <laughs> Over the last three days, I've been telling everybody, yep, I'll do it all in one shot. I don't care what it costs. I got to fix the problem. Let's say uh, that, that Greg wants to fix this problem in one shot. Can you put on that much copper? And should you put that much copper on in one application? Or should you be doing it over a period of years? Yes, you can put on that much at once. It won't take as much as we'd say. We'll tell clients that they can put on as high as 35 pounds of copper sulfate okay. to the acre. That's 23% copper sulfate. And as far as that goes, just take whatever it, it now, again, we're assuming this is our test because yep. the numbers can be Same different. Same as your test. But yep. on our test, just take whatever you've got and say, all right, for every five pounds of 23% copper sulfate I put on, I'm going to raise it 0 0.3. So we need to raise that from Zero point, uh, one, Six. from zero point six to two. Yep. That means it's going to take twenty pounds of copper sulfate. Yep. To get that up to two, yep. and you can put that on all at once, and solve that problem in one year. Yep. Or if you say, well, my budget just won't stand that, then you can put it on ten pounds two years, or five pounds for four years. Eventually, you're going to get there. Yep. Or even. One pound for 20 years is just going to take a long time. <laughs> My concern is if you don't do it soon, then you might continue to have a lodging problem or whatever until you get up to the level you need to be. So yep. then now I've got a lot more risk for the next three years if I was on a four-year program. If you put that 20 on, now you, you'll solve the problem. You'll yep. see that that will go up to at two parts per million in 12 months' time. Yep. But, but don't look at it in eight months and think you're going to see three-quarters of that. 
Okay. It takes a full 12 months to see what that copper is going to do. Right. Now, the other thing I was going to add to this is Greg's done an excellent job managing phosphorus. He's got phosphate up at uh, 250 pounds per acre at least. He's got base saturation K, 6 to 7%. He's doing great on P and K. And it doesn't sound like the nitrogen program is unreasonable at all. It sounds like normally what I would kind of shoot for on a nitrogen program, but we're lacking on the sulfur and the micros, and that's catching us, even if we manage NP and K perfect. And that, that seems strange for a lot of guys that, wow, I did the NP and K exactly right, but because I had a deficiency on copper and his manganese is uh, low to medium as well, uh, that that looks like where we should be spending some more dollars. Now, let me throw one other thing out here, too. Neil, can you comment on how copper kind of gets talked about as this disease micronutrient? So if you have good levels of copper, you seem to have better tolerance to disease because that's one of the things he mentioned is, well, they said I have disease. I probably have a copper issue, too, but they, that really could be two things together. It could be, and I don't know in this particular case about that disease, but yeah. in terms of copper... We'll tell a client, if, provided we've got everything else there in minimum amounts, if you've got take-all disease in your weight, then you have a copper deficiency. And there have been many uh, farmers from Ontario, Minnesota, up into Canada that have called us and said, we got our copper up to two. We don't have take-all disease anymore. Now, there are other people that will say, well, you got to have this and you got to have that. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is if you take care of everything else and you don't take care of the copper, you're going to have to take all this. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's get to our next question here. Go ahead, sir. Hi, I'm Larry from Minnesota. Um, I'm on the boron subject. I have, I side dress my corn with a liquid applicator that injects in between the rows mm -hmm. and adding boron to that, injecting in the middle of the row or between the rows, will the boron move like the N and get to the plant enough to... The boron, I can't tell you that it moves just like the end, but the end's not going to move too far either. Uh, but what I would say is that you put that out there and the roots will come out between how the boron moves and the nitrogen moves and the roots move, they'll come out to and take that up. And you, you will see a definite response. We have clients to do this all the time on all different types of crops if they can put at least a pound of boron in with their liquid nitrogen. Okay, then I guess at that doing that uh, what would be the best timing as far as the size of the corn the earlier the better or? well if you already if you've put on boron with the fertilizer application early then what we're wanting to do is get the boron on that to make sure we have enough boron later on and so the later you can go on that uh, the the better okay okay thank you yeah, and I would say, too, it depends a little bit on your situation, how low you are, how much you put on early. So we got to be thinking about that. We just don't want to starve the crop at any point. And we have pretty dry conditions here, so that's why a lot of times we just tell people, since we're dry, usually, not the last couple of years, but usually, we'd rather be with everything, nitrogen, sulfur, boron, a little bit on the earlier side than maybe some wetter climates. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. One more with a rig like mine. Uh, what would be the most boron you'd want to put on at that application? We never recommend more than one pound of actual at that, in, in that kind. I'm not saying you can't do more, but we wouldn't recommend more than one pound of, of actual. Uh, there may be people that tell you, oh, we put more on that than that and didn't have a problem. But safe, one pound of boron. One of the biggest concerns is always 
hey, if I've got my nutrient very super concentrated in one spot, could I potentially burn off a root? And you can always dig around a little bit too, but we'd, we'd say that even more so with the nitrogen than the boron because nitrogen, you might be putting a lot out there. So we got to hope that we get some moisture to kind of start moving that around. But to Neil's point, we don't, I mean, it's not like boron or nitrogen is going to go totally sideways unless there's a lot of compaction there, then maybe, but it's usually going to start going down with rain and then it, it starts to kind of V out from there. Hey, the last thing, Larry's yep. just starting to use turkey litter for the first time just on certain fields. Great. Is that going to impact any of these recommendations? or is there anything you should know about that before I get started? Uh, as far as what I would say is have an analysis of your litter and have your soil analysis and then take a look and see what do I have in the litter and how much is it going to increase so that you know that you don't overdo one element or another. This is the, To me, this is the biggest mistake people make in using uh, litter or manures, and that is you need to know exactly what you're putting on in the manure, not just NPK. You should also know the calcium, the magnesium, and if you're in an area where it can be a possibility, sodium. Uh, that way you can take a look and see, well, how many for every ton I put on, how many pounds of all these? And when, when clients send samples to us and they say they want to use manure, we say we need a manure sample as well as a soil sample. And then we'll look at each nutrient and see how much can they stand before it's too much. And whichever one is most limiting, then that's where you stop. Yep, and let's take that one step further. We would want to test everything that's going on in the farm. We'd like your lime tested. I mean, manure, compost, anything. We want to know for sure what's going on that ground so we can make appropriate fertilizer recommendations. Well, we're going to wrap things up here on Ag PhD Radio. Coming back right after this, stay tuned. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Bean growers continue to see yield loss from white mold across the Midwest this season. To maximize next year's crop, a white mold prevention strategy that includes Contans WG Soil Fungicide is a must for your farming operation. Applying Contans this fall to reduce the sclerotia in the soil is the most effective way to stop white mold at its source. Start a Contans white mold control strategy this fall or pay for it later in lost yield. We know balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid has the research, technology, and products you need to grow a great crop. Plus the expertise to give you a recommendation based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. AgriLiquid has the phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrient products necessary to deliver the best results from a solid fertility program. Visit agriliquid.com to find a dealer near you. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com.
a grain depth guard from Farm Shop MFG has helped farmers keep their bushels safe from spoilage and shrinkage loss in bins all across the country. And this low-cost solution just became even more affordable. Farm Shop MFG is offering a $100 factory rebate on all grain temp guard bin monitoring systems. This offer is available for a limited time only, so take advantage of this program now to upgrade your bins and protect your crop investments. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic herbicides from Atticus LLC. Tough broadleaf weeds are a hassle, but they're no match for Cavallo from Atticus. Cavallo delivers fast, contact, and residual control so your corn, soybean, and sorghum crops can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Thanks for joining us today here on Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty. Got my brother Darren here and Neil Kinsey as well. We're just wrapping up the show, taking questions from our audience. Go ahead there, sir. Uh, my name is Matt from Kansas. And uh, the kind of the whole last three days, we've been talking about the calcium-magnesium balance. And if you turn in a soil test and it comes back as a high-mag soil, the deal is, is that it'll tend to be, like you said, a tighter soil. Yep. And if you get a recommendation for lime, calcium carbonate, some form of calcium addition, and you said it takes three years for that to show up for full effect, does that just mean nutrient availability and the effects of how the efficiency of the nutrients are, or does that kind of play the same for porosity and soil structure and all that, like in a no-till situation where you surface apply it, how fast does that go down through the profile? Well, I, as far as, first of all, in, in the case of applying limestone, it is three years before you see the full effects, whether it has to do with porosity or whether it has to do with uh, uh, the calcium availability. And if it's dolomite, same thing with the magnesium portion. But uh, as far as putting the calcium on and how fast does it move down through the soil, I don't know that anybody has a handle on that. There may be some that will say, oh, it, on average it does this. But the lighter the soil, the faster it's going to move. The better rainfall, the faster it's going to move. The better root system you have, the faster it's going to move. The better microbial activity, or not just microbe, earthworms, all the other life in the soil activity you have, the better it's going to move. Uh, as far as that goes, I'll tell you, as I mentioned one time here, in vineyard soils, everything put on top, four tons of dolomitic limestone per acre, one ton of calcitic limestone per acre, and over a period of 10 years, the calcium from that lime had penetrated down 36 inches. And virtually on the other side where the lime was not applied, they split a vineyard. On that side, calcium was the same as it was when we started. Yeah, in no-till, I would just say it takes longer. When you're tilling, it's faster. But how fast? It's all relative. It's heat. It's moisture. You know, so it's it's going to be a lot different for me than it is for you in your geography. But yeah, we've done stuff with lime and no-till, and it absolutely can work. It just takes a little bit of time. And so one of my comments was just, hey, if you're not going to till it in and you're going to put on a crazy amount, I'd be a little bit careful about that. Neil talked about 
you know, how much you could possibly put on in one shot. I like to use a little bit of caution when I'm not working things in because think it's, you know, initially it's going to be just in that top inch or two. So I might ease into it just a little bit slower than somebody who has all kinds of rainfall, all kinds of heat, or certainly does tillage. All right, uh, let's see. Yep, we got our next question right here. Dale from Ohio. In your book, you mentioned several times the 8.69 TEC that Dr. Albrecht had. Why is that specifically the break point? All right, the reason we mentioned 8.69 versus uh, 8.7, the reason for that is the, that's when you should start beginning to concentrate on what your pounds per acre of magnesium is. In other words, what we say is once you get to there, you, have, you need to start looking about a problem that you normally have in sand. So we say you treat it like sand. It might be heavy. It might look like a heavier soil, but you actually start using the formulas you use to calculate how much calcium and magnesium do we need for a sandy soil. Hey, uh, Neil, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to explain this for our listeners so you know what we're talking about here. TEC is the total exchange capacity. You'll often hear us talk about cation exchange capacity, and he just said 8.69 on the, on the total exchange capacity. That's basically a sandier, lighter soil. Usually when we talk CEC, we say 10 and less is a light soil. We, we figure 10 to 20 is kind of a medium textured soil. We say anything above 20 is heavy ground. This is all relative, but the reason why we like a cation exchange capacity or a total exchange capacity number is so we're all on the same page. So anyway, go ahead. All right. And so the reason then, and I agree with you, Brian, exactly what you said there, but the reason that for that split is now all of a sudden magnesium levels have to start being reduced. And we start out at 250 pounds of magnesium that, that's when a, that's the minimum we want for a lighter soil if that doesn't drive the magnesium above 20%. So now you start going from 8.69 down into the 7s, down into the 6s, and finally you get to the point where 250 pounds of magnesium will be above 20%. Now we begin to reduce the, the magnesium from 250 to 245, 240, until you get down to 200. And then once you get to 200, doesn't matter what the exchange capacity is, you need to stay at 200 for every type of a, a sandy soil. But Dr. Albrecht used to always point out you need 200, but then uh, if you, you need a minimum of 200. But then if you could keep that soil, uh, we found in terms of working with sands, if you could keep that soil at 250, you always got a better response. You always got a better yield as long as that wasn't above 20% magnesium. All right, let's go to our next question. Yep, right there. Shane from Ohio. Is there any advice on fertility practices and or farming practices that you can do to increase early planting of soybean success? Would you any, anything you want to throw out there, Neil? Otherwise, I'll, I can certainly talk about that a little bit. I'd like, I'd like, I'd, I think I need to hear the question again. Oh, he was saying uh, early, he's going to plant his soybeans early. Are there some fertility things that he should be thinking about uh, if he's going to do that to help him be more successful? If I were going to plant my soybeans early, uh, are we are we talking about just a matter we've got a good soil and uh, 
do we just go from there? Uh, it's uh, 18 to 20 CECs. Uh, potassium uh, is a little low. Boron's at like 0 0.7, 0 0.8. Uh, mag manganese is low. All right. First thing is we talk about potassium, and potassium increases the water use for the plants. We say potassium is the poor man's irrigation. But there's another thing we didn't talk about for potassium. You need potassium for stalk strength or plant strength and for winter hardiness to stand colder weather. And so the first thing I would say is if you're going to if you have some low potassium, that's the first thing to concentrate on in terms of those soybeans. So one of the things that Neil talked about over our three days was manganese, and manganese absolutely can have an impact on germination and early early growth in that that plant. So in terms of fertility, it's really everything that we've talked about here over the last few days. We want the pH right. Well, the pH is usually the symptom of what else is happening out in that field. So we got to look at the major nutrients, secondary, and certainly the micronutrients. I pulled up on the screen for those who are in our audience here, corn and our cold soil strategy. You can plant beans when it's cold. You can plant corn when it's cold. Now, you're going to have a lot of people that say, well, ideally, we'd like to have the weather warm or the soil warm when we plant our corn and soybeans. I'd love to have that, too. The problem is our ancestors didn't care, apparently, about being nice and warm. They, they chose to farm here in South Dakota. So here's where we are, here's where our ground is, and it's stinking cold all the time. So we don't have a lot of choice. We have to plant when it's cold. So we have to look at how can we pop that seed out of the ground. Drainage is always number one. Fertility is always number two. But then if you have those things taken care of, here are our pieces of advice. Number one, don't ever plant before the crop insurance date. I don't care what crop we're talking about, but I always say the crop insurance companies are way smarter than all of us agronomists and farmers because they have all the data. They know when people have crop failures, so they're not going to have crop planting dates before then. So wait until the crop insurance date. Two, the soil's got to be fit. If you start mudding stuff in, even if you have the right balance of nutrients in your soil, your crop can't get to it. So do that. Then the next thing is take a look at your, your cold germination test. Now with corn, they run, there's a saturated cold germination test you can run, but you want a high level. So on the seed tag for corn or soybeans, you're going to see a germination test. What you're not going to see is what the cold germ test is. So what we would advise you to do is get your seed in and then test it if it's corn. If it's soybeans, just talk to the seed company because typically you're picking up your soybeans, you're planting them the same day because you just had the seed company treat those. But talk to them about the cold germ score. Then on top of that, use a great seed treatment package. You want good fungicides. There are a lot of beneficial biologicals, or we call them naturals. That's a good idea. And then in corn, we talk about inferal fertilizer, inferal insecticide, inferal fungicide. You can do those things in soybeans. We don't see the same response, and you have to be really careful about what you're putting next to soybean seed because it's much more sensitive than corn seed. All right, so as we wrap up today, I guess I just wanted to, first of all, say thanks a lot to Neil Kinsey. Really appreciate the last three days. Appreciate you joining us for the radio show. This has been awesome. I do want to thank our production people, too. They've had a lot of work here over the last three days. Uh, it's always a lot of work to make Darren and me sound good, but uh, uh, they did a great job, so we appreciate that. Thanks to all of you for being here, and thanks to everybody for listening today, and be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.